we are continuing our sermon series through the book of Romans. Um, fittingly, and this was not planned, I have to admit, that uh, the sort of key verse, one of the key verses in the beginning of the Protestant Reformation was Romans chapter 1, verse 17, which is a verse we're going to be covering today um, in the book of Romans. In fact, uh, Jimmy told me beforehand that, uh, hey, look, Pastor Rick, here's the verse of the day for today, and it was Romans 1.17. So that's what we're going to be looking at, is Romans 1.8-17. through 17. And um, just started the book of Romans as of last Sunday. By the way, uh, the ESV puts out these sort of uh, little booklets. If you're someone who likes to take notes, um, one side has the text of Scripture, the other side has you know, room for notes. I've got like, a, like 10 of these in my office, so if somebody's interested... Come see me after the service, and I'd be happy to give you one if you want to take notes throughout the whole sermon series, throughout Romans. Uh, The truth of the gospel shapes the church. The truth of the gospel shapes the church. The gospel created the church. When people receive Christ and come to faith in Jesus, they become part of a church. The gospel sanctifies the church. It's how people grow as they come to realize more and more the nature of their own sin, of our own sin, and the nature of God's holiness and of his grace. The gospel expands the church. When we share the gospel with our friends and neighbors and co-workers and extended family, that's how they come to faith and that's how the church begins to grow. And the gospel reproduces the church. How do churches get planted in new areas around the world? By the spread of the gospel. It's popular today to think of the gospel as something different than the church, something divorced from the church, separate from the church. As if really the key question is individualism, right? What what do I do with the message of the Christian faith? How do I respond to it? The church has very little to do with any of it. That is a foreign concept in the New Testament. Um, The idea in the New Testament would be why would you not be part of the church if you are a Christian? In fact, the idea of a Christian who is not part of a church would be a strange sort of idea to the first century. John Stott, famous late um, Bible scholar, said this, An unchurched Christian is a grotesque anomaly. The New Testament knows nothing of such a person. For the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. On the contrary, the church is God's new community. If the gospel makes Christians, and Christians make up the church, then what happens to a church when it rediscovers and centers itself around the gospel? Look with me at chapter 1. We're still sort of in the very beginning of Romans. Uh, Last week we covered just the introduction, just the uh, greetings, really. Hello to the church in Rome. This is Paul writing. That's all we covered last week. This beginning part doesn't still get into the meat of the letter. This is really just his sort of travel plans, his thanksgiving. What Paul typically does after saying hello in his letters is to give thanks and to offer a prayer, which he does in almost every one of his letters. That's all we're doing today, and then we'll be on to, I think, more of the solid meat of the letter next week, Lord willing. Chapter 1, verse 8, we read this, going to verse 17. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may may now at last succeed in coming to you. 
For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and preaching and application of his word this morning. Here's where we're going. First we see in verses 8 through 10, praying, praying always for the church. Verses 11 to 15, mutual encouragement in the church. And then 16 to 17, the gospel power for the church is what he's talking about here. So in this first section, he begins with the word first. There is no second or third or final. Uh, he's just saying this is the beginning of my letter here. And he offers this thanks in his prayer. And he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. By the way, that's how most prayers are offered in the New Testament. We pray to the Father through the Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. doesn't mention the power of the Holy Spirit here, but that's typically how we pray. And he is thanking God because of their faith. Because of their faith. Just a reminder, Paul has never visited the church in Rome. He's just hearing about what God is doing in Rome, completely outside of the work of the apostles. But the message of the faithful Christians there in Rome is going out everywhere. Which makes sense. It's the head of the empire, Rome. Um, But he's saying it's been proclaimed throughout the world. Throughout the known world. Not Far East and China and the American Indian and so forth. But in the known world, throughout the Roman Empire, everybody's hearing about the fact that God has created a group of Christians, a church in the capital city of Rome. And Paul says, as God is my witness. That's a way of almost saying, as I swear before the Lord God, um, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. So that's about as close to an oath as you can take here, that I am praying for you, Roman Christians, without ceasing. Always. You know, we tend to say to someone, oh, I'll pray for you. Or somebody tells us something going on in their life, and we say, praying And oftentimes we don't actually pray for them, right? (laughs) But here, what he's saying is, I am actually every single day praying for you. Not necessarily every minute of every day, but consistently, unceasingly, always lifting you up in prayer. And lifting up a specific request that he has. And that is that God would allow him to visit the church in Rome. Uh, Paul has been very busy in the Greek area there, planting churches and reaching out and discipling new leaders and making sure the churches have good elders that oversee them. And he's been wanting to get to Rome and he hasn't been able to get there yet, but he says every day I'm asking God to open up a a window, open up a door of opportunity so I can finally come to Rome. Which anyone uh, followed a a previous sermon we talked about, he does get to Rome in chains eventually. But he is asking that the Lord would finally allow him to visit there. Before we move on, though, notice the different aspects to his prayer. First, that prayer 
is gospel-centered. I go to the Father through Jesus Christ. Hebrews talks about it as if we are ushered into the very throne room of God, but only through Jesus Christ. We don't come to God sort of with our own good works and our own ceremonies, saying the right magic words in a specific mantra. We come through Jesus. Imagine trying to get access to a king. And you come to the doorman and say, I'd like to speak to the king. And he says, why would I let you go in to speak to the king? And you say, because the prince is going to come with me. And then you get ushered into the presence of the king. We go to the father through the son, the Lord Jesus, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Prayer is gospel-centered. Prayer is thanksgiving. Prayer is giving thanks. As he starts off here, I'm thanking God. I'm talking to God and saying thank you to God for what you have done. Thank you for creating a church in Rome that wasn't there before. Thank you for the fact that their faith is being proclaimed throughout all of the Roman Empire. He's thanking God. Friends, I hope prayer, our prayers are filled with thanksgiving. You know, the story of Jesus healing the ten lepers. The ten lepers are healed from their leprosy and on their, as they're leaving, only one decides to turn back and come back to Jesus and say, thank you. And Jesus says, where are the other nine? Be like the one. Be like the 10% that when they hear antsy answers to prayer, or when they come to know the Lord, they spend time saying, Lord, thank you. Thank you. Prayer is persistent. As he says here, uh, I pray without ceasing. I am always going to God. Uh, prayer is seldom one and done. Uh, Jesus himself taught through the parable of the persistent widow, a woman who goes to an unjust judge looking for justice, and at first he has nothing, has no interest in helping her, and he goes and he goes and he goes until finally the judge says, I am tired of this widow bothering me. <laughs> I'm going to give her justice, not because I care about justice or her, but because I don't want to be bothered by her anymore. And Jesus' point is not to say that God is an unjust judge who doesn't care about us. His, his point is to say how much more so would a loving father respond to prayer when we are persistent in coming to him? Friends, I, my own experience I would tell you very few of my prayers have been answered one and done. <laughs> Most of prayers take time to continually ask the Lord. Sometimes prayers will take decades. Trusting the Lord. Asking for his grace continually. And prayer is supplication. In other words, prayer is asking God for things. There is nothing wrong with asking God for something. In fact, we would be in sin not to ask God for things because we're told in the Bible to ask God for things. Here specifically, Paul is asking for an opportunity to go visit the Romans. So he's asking, he's laying a specific request. He's looking for God to answer that request. Part of our prayers are absolutely laying before God certain requests. God, please heal someone in our family. Help someone we know who's going through grief. Lord, be with us. Help provide a job that is needed. Be with so-and-so as they go through their travel plans or whatever the situation is, making requests before God. What a great model this is for our church. I pray, friends, that our faith in the Lord Jesus at First Baptist would be proclaimed far and wide. <laughs> we would be known for our love for God and trust in his gospel. Here in Haverhill, in the greater Haverhill area, and throughout the world, 
as we support our missionaries, that that would be our reputation. This is a church that loves the Lord, believes in the gospel, and really trusts him. Pray together. Pray together. Uh, I mentioned earlier the weekday noon prayer. Join us when you can at noontime and just spend a little bit of time in prayer, maybe at your lunch break at work. Pray in your community groups. Spend a little time asking God for things and thanking him. Certainly praying here on Sundays. We want to make sure prayer remains an important part of our weekly gatherings. Pray with someone on the phone or as you meet for coffee. Pray for missionaries as well. Uh, Paul is a missionary here, and so he's saying, I'm praying that the Lord be with me in my travel plans. So pray for our missionaries. Pray as they try to balance rest and work, time to be home, time to be away. As they travel, pray for them. Friends, pray for one another. Let's make requests before God. The Bible says in the book of James, you do not have because you do not ask God. Imagine what blessings we are missing out on because we didn't bother to ask God for them. (laughs) And that's kind of terrifying to think what we could have had spiritually if we had just asked God. Let's ask God for things a lot. God doesn't mind when we come to him and ask him for things. But then he gets into really the reason for his visit, what he is hoping to happen when he finally shows up in 11 to 15, looking for mutual encouragement in the church. He mentions why he wants to visit. He says, I I long to see you. So this isn't, he doesn't look at Rome as sort of a means to an end. doesn't want to just use them. He actually loves them. He cares about them. I'm, I'm desiring, it's emotional. I want to get to Rome and meet you and spend time with you and enjoy your company. There's a sort of pastoral love and care for these Roman Christians. He says, when I get there, I'm hoping to impart some spiritual gift. I know sometimes we think of spiritual gifts as referring to you know, acts of service or teaching or maybe even tongues and prophecy. That's not the context here in the beginning of Romans. He's talking here specifically, as he says, just more generally, a gift of strengthening you. That spending time there among you as the Roman Christians, I'm just hoping to bless you, to help you, to make your faith stronger. And then Paul switches and says, really, that is to be mutually encouraged. In other words, I'm not just going there to give you something. I I believe I'm going to learn something from you. I'm going to be blessed by you. Uh, Some commentators note that because Paul didn't start the church in Rome, he wants to approach it in a little bit more humble uh, way. It's not as if I'm your authority, uh, but wants to say, hey, there's going to be a mutual give and take here. Either way, I think that is the idea behind Paul's desire to go there. He wants to be blessed. He wants to be encouraged. And he feels like he has a lot to offer them in helping them along. He says that I might reap some harvest. That's a common illustration in the New Testament used by Jesus often as well. Um, A harvest, bearing fruit for the kingdom. Probably referring uh, both to what happens among the Christians in Rome, that their lives reflect the love of Christ, but also reaching outward outside the church, hitting the streets of Rome, and reaching people for Jesus as Paul loves to do. And his desire, as he says, is to reach both the Jews and the Greeks and the barbarians. What was a barbarian? A barbarian, according to the Greeks, was anyone who wasn't Greek. Right? So if anyone, anyone outside there, by the way, I don't know if you know this, but the uh, term barbarian comes from a Greek word, barbaros, 
And it comes from the fact that these foreigners outside of Greece, their language sounded like bar, 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 bar. That's why they called them barbarians. So that's why they got the name for them. But he says, it isn't limited to the Jews or the Greeks, it's to the whole world. To the wise and to the foolish. Most likely meaning those who think they are wise. Wise by the standards of this world. And those who would be considered foolish by the standards of this world. Paul is seeking a mutual encouragement. Paul the Apostle, of course, has a lot to give. The Roman Christians would be well served as he comes there and leads by example. As he spends time teaching and discipling the believers. As he goes out and does some evangelism and shares the gospel. As he helps train up elders and deacons in the church and shows them how to be about the great commission of going to plant churches outside of their own. But no doubt for Paul, what would be more encouraging than to see God at work there in Rome outside of his own hands? This is the work of the Holy Spirit. I had nothing to do with this group of Christians here in Rome. Nothing's more encouraging than to see the fact that this is God's work outside of a single apostle. That he wants to reap a harvest Maybe they need a little bit more of a challenge. Maybe there's some pruning that needs to be done. Anyone that's done any you know, gardening knows in order to get a, a, a good harvest, you've got to break off the old leaves, the dying leaves, and some of the fruit that's decayed, and to got to kind of prune it. Maybe there's some fruit that needs a little bit more ripening before it gets there. And Paul's saying, I can help in that area as you grow and bear fruit for the kingdom. Note something, too, uh, that what he could do from a distance with an epistle, with a letter, is very limited. He's saying, I actually need to be there present, face to face, spend time with you in your day-to-day lives. You think about the fact that we have kind of moved in a direction of a lot of online ministry. So keep in mind, it's very limited as to what can actually be accomplished. There is something about, as Paul is saying here, that you need to be present Think of Jesus himself and his ministry was incarnational. He came in the flesh. Jesus didn't live stream us from heaven, right? He, had to, he walked among us. He lived with us. He demonstrated his example. Friends, when we think about the Christian church and us here today at First Baptist, we need to be mutually encouraging. Why do you need to be part of a church? That's a common question today, right? I can have my own faith at home, watch my favorite TV preacher, support a local charity, serve in some community thing, and I'm fine. Why do we need to be part of a church? One reason is mutual encouragement. Friends, we all need to learn. (laughs) If the Apostle Paul is saying, I need to get something from you Romans, I don't know anyone here who could say, well, I'm really beyond the point of needing other Christians. (laughs) In fact, friends, the most dangerous place to be is to be in a place in which you think you have nothing left to learn from anybody. Be humble. Be willing to receive. There's more for you to learn. There's more for you to grow. Also, be willing to encourage others. So you go to church not just for yourself, but are you there to help bring others up? When we go to church, we're there to serve. We're there to help other people who are maybe struggling, maybe going through a difficult time spiritually, 
struggling with doubt or struggling with some sickness or through grief, are we able to be a comfort to those who are hurting? We bring a harvest out of each other. We're the ones who can look at each other and say, you know what, there's an area of your life that needs a little pruning, <laughs> to be honest. Or, I know you're, you feel ready to jump into doing this, but I think that fruit is not quite ripe yet. Let's give it a little bit more time. Or the opposite. And that fruit is hanging off of your, your life, and you need to start plucking it. You need to get to work for the kingdom. I did a little bit of gardening this year. I did some uh, tomato plants. Um, and I learned that uh, when do you actually take the tomatoes off of the plant? Some of you gardeners know this is basic, easy stuff, but I didn't know. And so once it starts turning color, it stops growing. And whether you pluck it or not, it makes no difference. It's really better to just take it off because, it, if anything, it could just steal nutrients. So you take it off, you leave it on your counter, and then it'll turn fully red, and then you can eat it. But if you don't know when to pull it off, you leave it on too long, it can actually begin to decay or get eaten by animals or bugs or whatever, right? The true is, same is true of us. We need each other to help say, hey, you should be jumping into a specific ministry. You should be doing this or that. We mutually encourage one another. And I would just encourage those who are watching online, uh, if you are able to rejoin us, come back to church. Online is a great sort of fill-in when you're not able to meet. But if you are healthy enough to come back to church, there is nothing that replaces actually being physically present together and helping one another. I um, remember hearing before that idea of just a physical touch. And I know some of you guys are like, I'm not huggers. So I'm not a hugger. So I don't, <laughs> I don't like hugs. That's okay if you don't like hugs. A handshake. But there is something about a physical touch. Um, they did this study before of these children in an orphanage. The children were getting sick and they were even beginning to die. And they weren't sure why until they realized the kids were not being physically touched. So they had the nurses just pick up the kids, hold them for like an hour a day, walk around with them and put them down, and the kids began to get healthier. It is, if that's true of an infant, of a baby, how much is it true of us as human beings? We need that, that physical presence, that physical touch. But then we come to 16 and 17, where he begins to define the gospel itself. What is the gospel? What is the good news of the Christian faith? And he defines the gospel. He starts off, this is, by the way, the theme of the entire letter. Um, this is, so when you are a good writer, as Paul was, and you're not just sending a quick little hello, um, you're putting together really a treatise, a statement of the Christian faith. You're going to make sure you're very clear. And right here then from the outset, Paul lays out the theme of the whole letter in verses 16 and 17. And all 16 chapters of this book are really going to be explaining this thesis, these verse 16 and 17. And he starts off and says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, which is a negative way of saying that I am bold, I am confident, I am trusting in this gospel. I am devoting my very life to it. I am seeking to live in line with this gospel, and I, my whole purpose in ex of existence here is now to spread this message. This is the message he's taken his stand on. He's devoted his life to. I'm not ashamed of it. As he says here, it is the power of God. The dunamis of God. Which, by the way, I know some people say means the dynamite of God. Uh, no, dynamite was created much, much later. <laughs> but the, Greek, the English word dynamite does come 
from the Greek word dunamis, but that's not the same thing as saying it's the dynamite of God. It is the power of God for salvation to any and everyone who will believe. It is effective by faith. This is where real, true spiritual power comes from. This is a spiritual atomic bomb, okay? This is where real power comes from. And then he explains it, verse 17, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And he quotes from Habakkuk 2.4, an Old Testament prophet, and says, this is the way it's always been, from faith to faith. What does that mean? The righteousness of God is revealed. Once again, this is where Reformation Day, which falls on a Sunday, so Reformation Sunday and Reformation Day are the same this year, really began was an understanding and an interpretation of verse 17, 500 years ago. The righteousness of God. For a long time, it was understood to refer to God's righteousness, meaning his holy standard, his law, which then condemns us. The righteousness of God is revealed, meaning this is God's holy standard, which we will never, ever live up to, and therefore we stand under his judgment. And one of the things that Luther came to understand, and Luther's an imperfect person. I know Mitch's message a month ago pointed out some of the problems with Luther, but on this, I think he was a huge help to all Christians. The righteousness of God does not refer to the righteous standard which God condemns us, but the righteousness that he gives us in Christ. This is the righteous work of God and the way he justifies or makes us righteous in his sight. This is the verse that, Paul, that Luther said was the gateway to paradise for him. We don't have to stand in judgment under the righteousness of God. We get the righteousness of God in us that covers us so that when we stand before an all-holy God, we stand righteous in his sight and free from our sin. He'll clarify this later on in the letter, particularly in chapter 3. Yes, God is righteous. Yes, we are condemned. But he grants us his own righteousness to cover our sin. And as he says, this is what happens from faith to faith. In other words, this is how God saves anyone. This is the only way anyone ever can be saved. (laughs) Nobody is saved by ceremony or good works or specific rituals or a set of sort of beliefs even, or right doctrine, we are saved by faith. Those in ancient Judaism, through trust in a good God who provides a sacrifice, those after Christ trust in that sacrifice who is Jesus, Christ himself. Our salvation comes by grace through faith. One illustration I like to explain this often is uh, an airplane, and that's because I'm the son of an airline mechanic, and the brother of an airline mechanic, and I know nothing about airline mechanics. But I like the idea of thinking about airplanes. And um, what happens if you you trust an airplane? Let's say there's one way off of an island that's doomed for a volcanic destruction, and there's only one plane. And the question is, do you trust that airplane? Do you have faith in that airplane? And the way you demonstrate faith in that airplane is by getting on board of it and flying out of the way of 
destruction. It's not faith that saves us. It's the airplane that saves you. But you have to trust. You have to have faith. You have to put your hope in it. The same is true of Christ. We're not saved by our faith. Our faith is the method which we receive God's grace, his righteousness is granted to us when we look to Christ as our Savior. Friends, this is where our power comes from as a church. It comes from the gospel. Uh, churches, I think, can get this wrong. Uh, you know, churches can be all about community or all about social justice. Those are both very good and important things. But friends, let's never forget that the real power throughout church history, throughout the world, comes with this message, with this gospel. That sinners are saved and set free from sin by the gospel, by the good news, by receiving the righteousness of God. What so often happens is churches start with this gospel. And then the next generation assumes it. Oh yeah, of course that's what we believe. But we're starting to focus in on other things. And then the third generation loses it until it's regained. This is where real spiritual power comes from. I know today's Halloween. Some people have different views on Halloween. Um, My personal opinion is there's no real spiritual power to any of it. The real spiritual power comes in the gospel. This is what saves. This is what transforms lives from darkness to light. This is what takes people who are far from God and brings them near who are dead in their transgressions and raises them spiritually to life. That we are made in the image of God. We are dead in our sins and transgressions. But the Lord Jesus has come, died, rose, and through faith in him, we are forgiven and made his forever. The gospel shapes the church. We pray gospel-centered prayers. We mutually encourage one another in the gospel and we watch the power of God at work in saving people. Now, what makes a church a church? It's a good question. It's a question that people have asked throughout church history as well. What makes a church a church? Um, What's the difference between a Bible study that meets throughout the week or a small group in someone's home or a campus ministry, maybe a parachurch ministry or a mission agency? What's the difference between that and a church? And what the theologians have come down to is really two things. There are two things that make a church a church. And the first one is the faithful preaching of the word of God. And the second one is the faithful administration of baptism in the Lord's Supper. Why? Because both of them proclaim the gospel and depend upon the power of God. Faithful preaching of the gospel is what reveals the truth of God and his righteousness. If we don't have that, nobody is being reminded and told what the gospel is. And what is baptism but a demonstration? I've heard it described as a skit, really, a play of the gospel. One is buried with Christ in his death, and as they arise from the water, they are risen anew, united to him. And what is the Lord's Supper but a recognition of the broken body of our Savior in his shed blood and our willingness to receive it by faith? One of the sort of battle cries of the Reformation. The, the song that sort of defined Reformation, the uh, Reformation Day for 500 years now is Ein Festeberg ist unser Gott, which, um, what does that mean? <laughs> and that's German. You know what she's laughing at? My horrible pronunciation. That's what she's laughing at. 
A mighty fortress is our God. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Let's ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabiot, Lord of hosts, is his name. From age to age the same. And he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word, above all earthly powers. No thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And as Luther said, we'll end with this, Christ died for me. He made his righteousness mine and made my sin his own. And if he made my sin his own, then I do not have it. And I am free. Pray with me. Gracious Father, we thank you for the power of the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that we need not be ashamed of this gospel. In fact, we take our stand. We are bold. We're confident, trusting in you which leads to a freedom in this life from the guilt and shame of sin, but a hope for eternal life that the day we pass on from this world, as we all will someday, if the Lord tarries, and stand before an all-holy God, those who have faith in Christ will come clothed in the very righteousness of God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.